This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world slash donate or support us through Patreon. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with David Holmgren. So we need to have working models at the smallest scales that then inform and feed up into the redesign, reformation, and where necessary, the radical turning over, uh, destruction, and salvage of larger scale entities. David is the co-originator of the permaculture concept following publication of Permaculture One, co-authored with Bill Mollison in 1978. His most recent book, Retro Suburbia, The Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future, shows how people can downshift and retrofit their homes, gardens, communities, and above all, themselves, to be more self-organized, sustainable, and resilient into an uncertain future. Well, welcome, David. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I just want to let you know that my personal journey has been very impacted, inspired, and influenced by permaculture. So this is really an honor to be speaking with you. Oh, it's great to be talking with you from the uh, climate zone that has quite some parallels to where you are in Northern California. But of course, we're entering uh, the early stages of summer here. Yes, and we are entering the early stages of winter as the rain is pouring down on my little cabin right now. So you might hear some pitter-patters and wood stove <laughs> crinkles from time to time. So, yeah. Well, wonderful. And I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with permaculture. But as an entry point, I wonder if you can share how permaculture differentiates itself from organic gardening. And how do practitioners of permaculture apply a holistic approach to living that honors time and leisure and isn't at the complete beck and call of the farm, but is still in relationship with the land? Yeah, well, I suppose they're, in some ways, they're simple questions, but they're also big questions. Permaculture certainly emerged out of a context in the 1970s of a resurgent interest in organics and uh, organic living, organic farming that was happening in the Western world, uh, building on roots that go back to, of course, to the 1930s 
and even earlier. So some of the reactions against the adverse effects of uh, industrial modernity and especially the industrialization of agriculture, which a lot of people don't realize was actually the last industry, if you like, to be industrialized. The textile industry was the first, uh, whereas agriculture was very, very problematic for the industrial uh, methodology. Uh, so it really is a 20th century phenomenon, in a lot of ways, a, a post Second World War uh, phenomenon. So in that sense, permaculture really was a, a branch off the tree of organic agriculture. But it was uh, picking up some of the, the themes that were in that movement, but also questioning some of the fundamental assumptions, including why is ag agriculture based primarily on annual plants, given how fragile and susceptible to erosion and land degradation agricultural systems based on uh, plants that have to be grown each year. Why doesn't our agriculture, like nature, uh, end up being dominated by perennial plants, and especially trees was obviously that huge focus. And that was picking up on one of the threads that were in those earlier waves of environmental thinking from the 1930s, the ideas of uh, especially the work of Russell Smith looking at uh, tree crops and the huge potential, undeveloped potential in the world's uh, tree crops. So it was also looking at how the modern ideas of design thinking as a, a sort of new literacy really that was not innate or obvious to uh, sensibilities of farming, where there was a focus on husbandry, uh, agronomy, but not so much spatial and, and temporal design. So those ideas coming out of the design professions, architecture, landscape architecture, planning, also were something that, that permaculture was adding or infusing into that lineage. And then there was another related aspect, which was looking at uh, the uh, ideas of systems ecology, and uh, especially the, the work of Howard Odom to try and understand the development of human systems in terms of energy transformation and using energy as both a language to understand nature and to understand human systems and a currency to really get a measure on it that would free us from the measures that had dominated industrial modernity, especially that, of course, of money. Uh, so there's a lot of threads to that, those distinctions that, or additions or evolutions that permaculture was making to that, um, uh, that lineage of uh, uh, organic agriculture. I really do love the design and systems thinking elements of permaculture. And I'm looking at it, my food forest right now that I built upon a very degraded logging landing um, from this land's history. And yeah, just, I don't see one straight line in this place. <laughs> and um, yeah, I really appreciate the, the quality that permaculture brings to growing food. And 
I know that practitioners of permaculture have been critiqued for appropriating indigenous knowledge under the name of permaculture. And I've also heard you credit traditional ecological knowledge for heavily informing your co-conception of it. So I'd like to ask you what the term permaculture really implies and which areas have largely come from indigenous knowledge and how that informs its ethics. Mm. Yeah, well, I suppose as a really a design system for sustainable living and land use, so being concerned with both the production side of the equation in land use in all its diverse forms, from horticulture through to forestry, aquaculture, and for that matter, the um, harvesting of the, the marine environment as well, also similarly concerned with how we make use of all of those things that we gain from nature. So the, the living side, the consumption side, it's looking at design principles that we can see embedded in nature and then expressed in more concrete, meaningful form in sustainable cultures that have persisted through time in connection to a localised resource base rather than the flushes of human empire expansion and urban systems that have come from those. So that inevitably takes you back to both um, what we would call Indigenous peoples and also more broadly uh, traditional cultures of place connected to land uh, because those limits of nature, the sort of the hard ecological and energetic limits are built in to those cultures because the feedback loop, the negative feedback loop of, you know, if you take too much, too many fish out of the river or all of those things, are those are built into the sort of the cultural learnings. And although we claim the emerging design principles of permaculture were perhaps a unique permaculture conception, the ethics of permaculture of care of nature or care of the earth, um, care of people and fair share, we could see was really a distillation of what was common to all traditional cultures in the past. Uh, so uh, we weren't claiming those things to be new, but that ethical framework or reference point uh, really meant that permaculture was not just some set of techniques or even strategies uh, that could be used without reference to ethical relationships. And so that is probably the most single important aspect that drew from Indigenous uh, knowledge. But then there was a plethora of examples, of course, that mostly were in a context of people providing their needs directly, not through a monetary economy, but through self-provision at the household and community level. And of course, that's been a major theme of permaculture as a pushback to the monetarization, the commercialization, the, the shoving of all of human economic activity into the monetary economy, which is really a very, very recent aberration only made possible by fossil fuel. So in that sense, we're also harking back to 
a world where a lot of human needs, both material and non-material, are provided at the household and community scale. You know, what people would call self-sufficiency or those sort of ideas, because they are just like normalised in, in those uh, traditional knowledge uh, areas. And of course, there's the more obvious ones that people associate with permaculture, which would fall into the category of what the field of economic botany of, well, look, there's this really interesting plant that these people grow in this place. You know, that could be useful to incorporate. It's not part of our cultural lineage and it's certainly not part of, you know, commercialised agriculture, but that looks like a, a useful species. And there's some knowledge about it with these people who, you know, have been using that for centuries or or longer, you know, so that I suppose is some of the areas where people uh, might speak of uh, cultural appropriation. My attitude to that has always been that it's really important to acknowledge where things come from, but that in a world of global diffusion of not just peoples, um, but biology, uh, that inevitably the world is a new fusion out of which may emerge over long time new enduring cultures of place which themselves will inevitably be some sort of hybrid fusion of different cultural influences that are relevant to that place uh, in the same way that the biology of those places is changed forever by the the infusion of uh, uh, biology from other places. And both those issues have been, I suppose, somewhat contentious in permaculture, the, the valuing of naturalised species and this um, valuing of different sources of uh, knowledge and, and making use of, of those. Perhaps one of the distinctions I'd make in the area of a appropriation is that when the use is at the non-monetary level of self-provision, I see that as quite different from when that transfers into commercial activity. And then I see another transition that people often don't make a distinction between people who are making a living livelihood in the monetary economy from some sort of knowledge or or biology that may be have come from other people. And then when a corporation is doing that, when a non-natural person, those um, self-organising, cost-minimising, um, profit-maximising devices that we created that now have human personhood <laughs> uh, are doing that. So I see there's, you know, three levels uh, and the concerns about appropriation need to relate to those uh, levels of use. There's been a recent wave of skepticism when it comes to radical self-reliance and a very fervent discourse that looks to hold industry, government, and corporations accountable in its place. But you've been vocal that individual acts in the form of self-reliance might be more successful at generating structural change than mass movements or policy ever could. So how does disavowal at the community level, or what you call voting with your feet, create the kind of change that meaningfully thwarts the state, 
or at a minimum is a necessary precursor to mass mobilization? Mm. Yeah, I think it operates at several different levels. Firstly, there's the issue of all of us being complicit by being embedded, uh, dependent on and benefiting from uh, the structural systems of, uh, of global exploitation. Uh, so there's a sort of, uh, to some degree, uh, an ethical imperative that if we are talking about a different world where these systems need to be dismantled, that there's a sort of uh, an ethical pressure <laughs> or imperative to uh, see if we can do that ourselves. And although strong arguments can be made that that is the degree to which we can do that is very uh, limited because of the, you know, the structurally embedded nature of those systems. Nevertheless, there's, there is that imperative to try out our own radical ideas ourselves. <laughs> um, and I think that gives enormous credibility and gravitas to those ideas compared with uh, sort of demanding that we sort of somehow restructure society in these radical ways. But to attempt to do that at a large scale from the top down is almost certainly either going to fail or have adverse consequences. Because any system that works, that is successful uh, from a systems thinking point of view has evolved from a simple system that works. So the simple system that works is at the smallest scale, that of the individual, the household, the local community. So we need to have working models at the smallest scales that then inform and feed up into the redesign, reformation, and where necessary, the radical turning over, uh, destruction and salvage of larger scale entities. There's also a really important argument about scale and human ability to understand or comprehend the current scale of industrial systems. But there's also a, another important aspect in terms of political autonomy that when we have some degree of self-reliance, and I'm generally not thinking of that at the individual level, I think it's very difficult to think of that at the individual level, but at least at the household level. And by household, I tend to mean more robust, often multi-generational households of several people. There is an enormous strength and partial political autonomy that comes with that self-reliance. And then when speaking to power from that position, there is not necessarily leverage over those systems, but at least we're in a position where we can't just be turned off. Whereas the modern person embedded in the industrial system is almost dependent on that system for the air they breathe. So it's very difficult to have a mass movement shouting for change when there is actually very little power over the day-to-day -day most basic needs. When we regain that, as all of our peasant ancestors um, actually had, then we can combine that with 
global understandings and information systems to be in a much better position to change those larger scale systems. And I think finally, the recognition that we are in such a, an extreme level of crisis that we do have to come to terms with the fact that our agency to bring about transformative large-scale change without collapse and some degree of uh, chaos means that it is incredibly circumspect to have that self-reliance as some degree of uh, function in the sense of lifeboats. Not that, you know, there's some sort of isolationist view of that at the extreme of perhaps the, you know, the survivalist uh, attitudes is, of course, in any way viable. But it does make sense to be doing those things for all of those nested purposes. And that ability to have some degree of autonomy by people who are part of the global middle class, I've articulated, is a potential huge strike against the system. It's not just a strike of labour, uh, it's also a strike of consumption. And for most middle class people, it's potentially a strike of capital in terms of investment. And that is a very powerful withdrawal of contribution that is uh, possible. Um, and that signal into the system, I've suggested that it would only take relatively small proportions of population to do that, to have an enormous effect on the system. Whereas if you look at the uh, democratic politics, the whole attempt to get majority ideas over the line, that's a huge task, especially when the mass movement we're talking about is some, in some ways a dematerialization, uh, a reduction in uh, material consumption, uh, a mass movement shouting for less. You know, we don't have many, if any, precedents in history uh, for such ideas being successful. And we also have recent history that shows us when the system is committed to a particular direction, even a majority of the population wanting to go in a different direction doesn't necessarily uh, produce the result. Maybe you need sort of 80 or 90% of the population to overturn some deep drive in the system in a certain direction. In Australia, I use the example of Australia's decision to join the United States in the uh, invasion of Iraq. Uh, the vast majority of the Australian population were completely against that, but it still happened because the system at a deeper level was so deeply committed to the American alliance and the geopolitical machinations uh, driving systems in the Middle East that we still, um, you know, went to Iraq. So I see the possibilities of relatively small proportions of empowered people voting with their feet can have an enormous influence on the system. But even if it doesn't, it serves all of those other functions.
I really appreciate your analysis and the clarity and the empowerment that it makes me feel when I'm listening to what you just described. And in the class divide in a time of pandemic, a permaculture perspective, you write, quote, I have articulated this life as a quiet boycott of an unsustainable system that beguiles the population with its seductions and addictions while increasingly exploiting those at the bottom as it trashes our precious earth and hands a cargo of adverse consequences to future generations. End quote. And I'd like to discuss class and privilege in terms of permaculture because it's something that is often shied away from, but you're open about the barely recognized privileged elite, quote. So with this in mind, I'm wondering if you could speak to the importance of the quiet boycott in terms of class and privilege and reducing degrees of dependency on the wealth of globalized capitalism. And also, how does the middle class have an important role to play here? Yeah, I mean, it's for me, these things are sort of have quite a deep history because I was brought up in a family of uh, radical socialist activists who, um, you know, inherited all of the issues of, of working class struggle for rights at the same time in my parents becoming small business proprietors, uh, owning a bookshop, a technical bookshop, and, um, you know, those sort of different worlds of um, allegiance to uh, class in different ways and uh, then recognise growing up, oh, no, actually, we are middle class uh, in spite of a whole lot of things about political allegiance and uh, the superficiality or the, the surface aspects of, uh, of the way I grew up. And a lot of that is to do with privilege and being able to recognise that privilege and take it as a responsibility to be able to think forward and take uh, longer term actions rather than be driven by just by immediate uh, needs. So I think there's a long lineage in affluent societies where in spite of the toxin of affluence, there's been aspects where people with privilege work out how to use that privilege for some larger, deeper purpose of, of, of social transformation and, and uh, evolution. Uh, so I think that is important. Of course, we're now in a situation where the the global middle class might be still expanding at the fringes in India and China, but in its places of origins in the Western world, the middle class has been in a process, I would suggest, of contraction since the what I call the Reaganite, uh, Thatcherite revolution of the late 1970s and early 80s of uh, gradual squeezing down of that. And of course, that's part of what has generated the toxic politics in, in so many countries. But that privilege that still exists there for those who can step outside the, the propaganda of the system, which is telling people to 
basically do things which are actually against their own economic and political interests. And that gets down often to telling people that they need a big house and a high debt and two full-time incomes on a treadmill when if people stepped back from their own situation and looked at it objectively, they'd say, no, we should actually get out of debt, move to a, a simpler place, drop back to two part-time livelihoods or one livelihood and the, the other get the household economy cranking again because actually we'll be better off. So that ability to step back from the propaganda and be able to actually look at one's own self-interest firstly and then extend that in some sort of enlightened self-interest and think about the larger social and ecological systems we're embedded in is to some extent privilege, but it's also incredible opportunity. And those opportunities are in some ways historically unprecedented. So for example, there are so many middle-class people in our countries who actually do own their own homes. And those homes are the largest homes that are, you know, mass populations have ever owned in history. So actually, as owners of those homes, people are in an amazing position to take in borders, create extended household uh, economies, while still having some degree of control privilege over that process, and yet empower these, you know, other people and provide conditions for other people to participate in that. Now, the fact that most people don't choose to do that, have some large house sitting there largely unused and going out and working in jobs they don't like to support all that uh, is, to me, people being really stupid. You know, they're not actually looking after their self-interest. They're not actually making use of their privilege. They're f wasting it both from themselves, for themselves and obviously for the for the planet, for their wider community. The other aspect that I think of um, privilege is when we, if you like, dabbling with growing our own food, rather than doing that with the need for certain success each year, like a lot of our peasant ancestors couldn't fiddle with the recipe too much because their food supply in the coming year really depended on what they did. Whereas we have the privilege to experiment, to do things and, oh, well, that didn't work. What's the learning from that? Now, some people disparage that as saying that's just um, recreation or hobbies or, um, you know, it's not real and it's just, of course, propped up by the larger system. But if we take that opportunity as a learning opportunity where we can take risks, where we can bring that uh, spirit of the entrepreneur, the scientific experimenter back down to that domestic scale and said, yeah, this is our privilege and our obligation to do this so that the next generation has got more robust systems uh, in case they don't have the privilege and the opportunity to 
do the experimentations that we can do. Yeah, you wrote a retro suburbia, and it highlights the importance of strengthening the home economy, which I think many are beginning to experiment with informally right now. Uh, at the same time, I also feel that the cultural conditioning of consumerism has been so omnipresent over the past few decades. This pandemic temporarily showed us just how unnecessary so much of the economy is, but the halt of consumerism was short-lived and it was simply rechanneled to different venues. So I'm wondering how can we replace mindless consumption with mindful productivity in the home economy and how will this impact our relationships? Yes, well, <laughs> you're certainly right that how quickly the the forces redirected that consumption system in other ways. But I think the halt or the pause of the pandemic has provided a trigger for so many people who are already questioning the way they live, thinking about other possibilities. And like a lot of um, analysis about the pandemic, just accelerating processes that are already underway, for example, the digitization of the economy and all of those uh, sorts of things, we can see the emergent interest in self-reliance and the household economy, which has been growing in pulses for the last 30 years against a background of decline, uh, little pulses at different times when faith in the mainstream economy and society declines, there's a rise in interest in these things. And I can correlate the interest in permaculture with those pulses, you know, typically associated with economic recessions. Uh, and we can see how the pandemic is a, another stronger one of those. So I think that also can re-spark learnings in young people or younger people that they inherited from their parents going through similar ideas in the past, but that were then swept aside by the, the onrush of the economy. So we've always taken the view um, that's often said in the Catholic Church about, you know, uh, give me a child until seven and I have them for life. Uh, that's a little bit more problematic um, uh, in the um, in a postmodern world, but the idea is that children raised in a family where there is a robust household economy, when the conditions are right as adults, they will immediately pick up that that experience rather than having to start it from scratch. So I think we are already seeing the consequences of this multi-generational, if you like, countercultural aspect of the, the revival of household economic uh, values. And that, that is a sort of a, a building at the same time that, of course, there's these larger forces that are, are keep uh, funneling everything towards the centres of power and wealth and control. But, of course, there's huge challenges in that because that brings us face to face with the people we share household with, we are in intimate relationships with, and so many intimate relationships 
in our society actually successful and to some extent enduring because people spend very little time with each other. And that is a a very sobering realisation about really fragility of uh, relationships, that when people are embedded in outside work and even entertainment and uh, different networks, they can avoid the difficulties that come with being in close proximity. So I think the challenges of how to work together are certainly ones that um, a lot of people are finding difficult in the in the pandemic. And it naturally leads people to say, oh, let us free to get out and get back to what we're doing. And some of that is positive engagement with you know, many more people. Um, and a lot of it, of course, is back into the the patterns of the past. So I think where people have a history of uh, working from home, um, partnerships where people, uh, certainly my own experience of um, a partnership in life and livelihood that's been going on for 35 years, you know, people often marvel at how do you actually put up with each other and the mechanisms by which we develop autonomy or authority in certain areas and whether those are ones that might be traditional if that suits our disposition or quite different ones but you know certainly in our own household the notion of his and her department creates a situation where there is autonomy of action where you don't need to consult uh, with others you may get help and you put the conditions for that help, but you have your territory of influence or authority and working out how that household economy has those complementary relationships rather than the idea that we are all equal, have all have equal skills and we all do the same things. Because in an ecological sense, uh, we see in nature that is actually a setup for actually competition between species or competition between individuals. What we see in nature and in human society is people with different capabilities, different dispositions, actually have a, a natural tendency to cooperative relationships because there's this mutual interdependence. And of course, it's that dance between having the interdependence that is for the benefit mutual benefit but enough autonomy that we are not totally dependent on each other in in ways that are not so healthy and you know it's it's always a balance and it's like the balance between are we jacks and jills of all trades in permaculture that very much self-reliance do it yourself or a master of one. And uh, I think um, really we have to be Jackson and Jills of all trades, but also a master of one. So there's a connection there between how that household economy works and how the wider society works and our roles in it. Yeah, human relationships and the dynamics that 
follow are so complicated and challenging. <laughs> so I, I feel that. And yeah, I found that many permaculture communities tend to be dominated by a very similar grouping of people. But you write that these adaptive strategies are accessible and intended to be adapted by the majority, which I think for many begs the question of who is permaculture for? Is it accessible to everyone in terms of resources and tools? And if not, how do we work to make it more so? Because I found the practice to be so incredibly pleasing to the soul, the way in which natural growth is allowed and common sense is welcomed. I think it where we see permaculture as a specific set of practices, um, inevitably the limitation of those practices uh, when we shift from one environment to another shows up quite obviously. And I've been a great critic of people proposing permaculture, you know, in that sense of a specific set of practices, you know, because of that everything is context dependent. And similarly, when we look at uh, people's uh, social or economic situation uh, and a definitely cultural uh, context, some things uh, will translate from others, but not always. So, for example, if you look at the idea of the most classic iconic permaculture idea of a food forest, we're talking about systems that are dominated by long-lived, uh, often slower-growing fruit and, and nut trees, and especially the, the nut trees often quite long-term before they even produce. So that obviously that investment of energy to do that, you can see how that has been a major limitation for uh, people in uh, poverty-stricken parts of the world with limited resources where they're growing their food from annual crops each year. We can also see in the history of suburban food production, uh, as documented in Australia in the early 20th century, that middle-class people grew gardens, uh, whereas working-class people mostly restricted themselves to backyard livestock because they had poor security of tenure, they didn't necessarily, couldn't invest the time and the forethought in planning a seasonal garden, but they could feed some rabbits or, or backyard uh, chickens and take them with them uh, if need, need be. <laughs> so you can see how in different contexts, both historically and in terms of permaculture design, different strategies and techniques are going to be relevant to people, both in their, you know, their cultural interest, their, their food preferences, uh, all sorts of uh, things. And we can see that with appropriate technologies as well of how we build on what already exists. And the, the retro suburbia paradigm is really obviously focused on uh, the Western world where the large numbers of people in many of our countries, the majority of people live in some sort of low density uh, residential living arrangement and that that template of living has this sort of huge potential for transformation by creative adaption, building on what already exists. So that retrofitting 
paradigm is really a little bit moving away from what a lot of people would see the lineage in permaculture of clean slate design, uh, whether that's uh, a bold new plan to develop a, an eco village or whether it's simply starting with uh, a patch of grass and building a, a garden from scratch to the idea that everything has a history, everything has an existing state, everything already has some value and some constraints, whether those are physical or um, psychosocial. And so that retrofitting from where we, what we already have is both an honouring and an acceptance of what already exists without saying this is fixed, that we can change it to make it fit for new purpose. And that's where the retrofitting paradigm sort of really came out of the 70s energy crises, especially in the United States. The idea of retrofitting buildings to make them uh, fit for an era of expensive energy. But similarly, we can apply that to the biological domain of uh, changing uh, existing gardens or, or, or farms. And of course, most dramatically, we can apply it to our own behaviour, to retrofit our own behaviour to make it uh, fit for new context. And so that we can shed behaviours like uh, an old worn out pair of shoes or um, a, a pair of shoes that's inappropriate, <laughs> that are um, too tight for our feet or <laughs> high heels that don't work on natural ground or, or a million other things that we can be open in that way to adapt and retrofit our own behaviour without saying we need to throw everything out and start from scratch. States, there has been a significant exodus of city dwellers to the countryside. And this jarring shift from one locale to another is not always done with care or consideration. So when I think about building community resilience, this is something that also comes to mind, the dynamics and tensions between community and change. I wonder if you could just speak personally to what you're seeing in your community in terms of pandemic-inspired relocations, and how we can weather the growing pains of gentrification. Yes, <laughs> that's certainly something we're seeing here. And of course, being on the 
30 kilometers from Australia's second largest city and the one that went into uh, a long extended uh, lockdown has uh, resulted in us seeing this exodus process you were speaking of. And I think, again, it's accelerating something that was there. There's been these sort of waves of, of moved, moves to the country. And in some ways, my retro suburbia paradigm is, is sort of saying to people, look, there are other opportunities, including adaption in situ. But we're also seeing a shift from higher density urban core living to suburban living. Uh, but more commonly, this jump from the city, uh, if not to rural properties, then to uh, small towns like where we live and also our larger regional towns. And that is mostly happening through people uh, with the choice and the ability to do that, uh, of course. And it doesn't take many people in a a city of many millions to choose to move to the country to towns with only a few thousand people being overwhelmed by uh, both buyers of existing housing uh, stock and uh, people buying land and uh, building. So I find that certainly a bit depressing that we are going to get these, it appears, uh, we are getting it right now, this rapid infill development and urbanisation and uh, gentrification. But I also sort of see how that's partly a consequence of the social evolution that, uh, that happens. And I wrote about this in Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, where people who moved to the country in the 1970s and uh, started uh, many places that that then became attractive to others of their own ilk that had stayed in the city, but then were attracted to the, the resources, the economic resources, the, um, the health food shops, the uh, alternative uh, schools, the art galleries, all sorts of resources that then attracted urban people. And meanwhile, those pioneers who had uh, begun that process had themselves become more influenced and ruralized to some extent there'd been this fusion uh, and i think this has occurred in the united states like it has here where people moved with the environmental values that may have come out of urban middle class ideals and found themselves in connection and community with people who were rural working class people and that both groups actually started to see some of the sense or value in the other. And I think that's been one of the, the processes that then leads to people looking at the next wave of arrivals from the city with disdain because they recognise, or maybe they don't recognise, but they have changed as well as you know, people bringing a, another phase of uh, hyper-consumerism. The other aspect that I'd see that is um, some positive aspect is that those people coming who are um, 
have more financial resources, uh, often in a position to employ local people and take direct responsibility for the paradise they want to create for themselves. And that that's actually, in a social evolution sense, a better step than the disconnected consumption in the centralised system where they don't really have any direct relationship with the things they're consuming and often don't have any direct relationship with the people they might be employing. So, you know, these things are always, um, I think, a, a mix that the you know, that perspective in, in permaculture, that the problem is the solution. I'm going to have to remember that <laughs> and tell myself that when I'm feeling the anxiety of the gentrification of the countryside, because it's definitely, yeah, something that makes my heart beat faster. And in the article previously mentioned the class divide in a time of pandemic, a permaculture perspective you also write, quote, the greatest blessing of the ancient Mediterranean world was to be a free citizen of Rome. But over time, the tax burden of sustaining the bloated empire made citizenry more of a curse. When the empire did fall, life for many ex-Roman citizens actually improved. Even if many of the great cultural projects and achievements of the civilization were progressively abandoned. Maybe humanity can make a better job of it this time around, with the progressive failure of global industrial civilization. It is a great irony that the fate of our cultural legacy will lie more in the hands of households and communities than with grand institutions and nation states, end quote. And I've also read about how you see great limitations when it comes to how we imagine dystopias. So this question is open-ended, but I'd love to learn about how you're thinking about the potential of salvage economies or your work with future scenarios and how you're guiding people to think about extreme crises as a temporary portal? Mm. Well, I suppose just starting at a very simple level with that, in my observations of permaculture projects around the world in the sort of few extended teaching and study tours that I've done overseas, I've found that more than ecological agriculture and gardening, more than ecological building, perhaps the most universal themes are those of creative salvage and reuse uh, that you just seem to see everywhere. And I think that's partly a sort of a, uh, a symptom of the huge opportunities that come as very large, powerful uh, industrial civilization complexes go into decline and uh, dysfunction. That what that means is the world is littered with a whole lot of nasty things that we don't want to inherit, whether that's um, heavy metal pollution or you know some of the worst things of uh, nuclear waste deposits and unmanaged nuclear power stations and other horrendous disasters that have been focused on. But it also means that our descendants will have this huge opportunity for creative reuse of things at a, a lower scale. Um, 
I remember a permaculture colleague who did a lot of work in Vietnam talking about the incredible creative reuse of industrial hardware where left behind by the Americans uh, after their uh, defeat in Vietnam. And, you know, engines out of tanks, you know, being driving water pump systems and uh, all sorts of amazing creative reuse and high levels of skill, engineering skill in uh, fixing and, uh, you know, using things in, in that sort of way. So I think that applies to so many aspects of our society that give uh, options when the drive of that system towards constant growth um, ha has failed. And there's certainly, you know, if you look at the United States, the proportion of its wealth which is going into the military budget to project and maintain the power is actually a, a perfect parallel to the Roman Empire where that's actually depriving the citizenry of basic resources and you know for the sake of maintaining the empire which is exactly why you know Roman citizens bailed out of being Romans so there's many ways in which that salvage economy can express itself. And in the more extremes of my energy descent scenarios of the future, I've pointed out that these scenarios are, are not like some return to uh, the Stone Age. And just the example of stainless steel, that the quantities of stainless steel that there are in the world that is not going to rust and go away and with some fairly basic tools, um, it's possible to fabricate all sorts of things at the most basic level, a stainless steel knife. You know, for thousands and thousands of years into the future, even if there is none of that industrial capacity is ever uh, maintained or rebuilt. So that degree, some degree of endurance of not just things, but also of knowledge of capacities to do things. And all, all these things, of course, have depreciation rates. Um, you know, there's loss of knowledge. There's all sorts of things which are lost. But there's uh, the possibilities of creative energy descent pathways uh, that more than the extremes that are associated with, you know, the term collapse, and another aspect of that that I think is very important is similar to the way we look at industrial wastes as both toxin and opportunity. If we look at biological systems uh, that people would see as running out of control with uh, so-called invasive species, that so many of these biological systems are actually more capable at rebuilding soil, water, uh, and biodiversity resources in the longer term than a lot of the species that were originally in those landscapes, partly because they have that exotic vigour, that weedy nature, and that even if those things are both inconvenient for us currently or we can see the downsides of the impacts they are having. In a larger sense, they may be part of nature's 
sort of emergent strength out of the you know the chaos we've created and there's very good you know evolutionary evidence to suggest that 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 is the case and of course one of my lifelong sort of subjects of study has been these advanced novel ecosystems where you see where nature has taken over after humans have uh, trashed a place and we live in an area which was all uh, gold mining sluiced down to the bedrock in an enormous frenzy that was part of the richest gold region of the world. And we now have these extraordinary recombinant novel ecosystems that are building new soil and, and biodiversity. So I see that is not so much a salvage economy, but nature actually sort of building new biological wealth for its own purposes, but that's also wealth which will provide modest resources to sustain people in the future. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow, David. Well, this has been such an incredible conversation so far. And as we come to a close, I'm thinking about how permaculture works with nature instead of against it, which is a call so many of us are drawn to, but that requires familiarity and relationship. And I think about how narratives of climate change and climate chaos emphasizes that things are rapidly changing and that the earth will become volatile and unpredictable in nature. So how do you make sense of these somewhat conflicting realities and what can permaculture offer to those who are concerned about making it through challenging times? Yes, I mean, I, I think these things are sort of enormous difficulties and clearly we do have the possibility of runaway changes that um, can make the earth uh, at least uninhabitable for a, uh, a species like Homo sapiens, um, if not many um, other species of of life. But at the same time, I think the disempowering nature of that information is more extreme when people don't have experience of the abundance and renewal of nature. And whether it's the, the birth of um, kid goats or merely just seeing seeds emerge and grow into food plants, <laughs> uh, so many simple things inevitably they they seem ordinary but i constantly am surprised at how much that connection to growing your own food to connection to working relationship with nature actually enlivens and helps people deal uh, with those larger scale questions of uh, the severity and uncertainty about uh, the future of, of nature. And it doesn't mean that there's a naivety about those things, but it just actually provides a more nurturing environment and a, a closer connection to the, the lived realities. So it's both bringing us to the, those realities and the, the difficulties of that at the same time that dealing with this abundance and renewal of life and the way nature keeps finding uh, new ways uh, to work. And 
I think that really is um, at so many levels contributes to being able to work productively and contribute to that process rather than succumb into a spiral of uh, depression and dysfunction. And so really in that sense, you know, we say in terms of permaculture activism, this is just, um, maybe this is just a more fun way to live. Um, you know, we're having more fun doing this and it, it appears uh, relatively um, harmless. <laughs> and uh, that alternative, when I see so many people going through the process of extreme burnout in activist uh, actions to try and stop the bad things happening in the world. Um, so many people end up coming to permaculture from that state as just, well, this is actually just necessary for their psychological survival. And of course it can be said and critiqued that that's, that's not gonna change the world but uh, neither is if we, we um, collapse in dysfunction or we resort to the extremities of the, the extreme eco-terrorism, sort of like we must stop the system by uh, destruction, uh, which in the end can only be symbolic and only brings the discrediting of the, the changes that are needed. So in that sense, you know, permaculture has actually acted to find uh, a space to people to survive with the burdens, the psychological burdens that the, the current world provides. Mm, I, I feel that, David. The burnout is real and it's healing, so healing to be with the earth and with our hands in the soil and watching plants grow and nourish the land and ourselves and our communities. So this has been such a beautiful conversation. I personally appreciate your work as well as on a collective level. And um, yeah, I'm just excited to continue following your work and learning together as we move through this uh, strange unraveling this great unraveling of our time. Well, thank you. It's been uh, great to talk and uh, appreciate your work in, in this regard. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Roma Ransom and Jody Sieper. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glossbell, and Melanie Younger.